we go into a new government, we go into Russia reset, and Mr. Putin learns he can get away with murder, literally. Welcome to another episode of Global, a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices in one country per episode. I'm your host, Sinclair Stafford, and on this episode, we'll be talking about Georgia, the mountainous Eurasian country, not the peach state. Before we dive in, loyal listeners may have noticed a new episode that we referred to last month. We're calling it a podlet, and it's a thematic conversation with one of the IRI hosts and one or two experts on something we've identified in the last couple of years of doing the podcast. This gives us a chance to talk at a broader level about some of the themes that we're seeing. If you have any feedback on it, please let us know by emailing us at podcast at IRI.org or leaving a review so more people can hear about Global. So first, a few details about Georgia. Situated in the Caucasus just south of Russia and north of Turkey, it's about the size of South Carolina. One note about that, though. Russian forces have occupied approximately one-fifth of Georgia, consisting of the two breakaway regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, since 2008. If you think this sounds familiar, it's because Russia used the same model when it invaded eastern Ukraine and annexed Crimea in 2014. It was ruled from 1992 until 2003 by a former foreign secretary of the Communist Party named Edward Shevardnadze. In 2003, the parliamentary elections, largely seen as fraudulent, triggered the Rose Revolution, overthrowing Shevardnadze. Since then, Georgia has turned towards the EU and begun to more fully integrate with it economically and politically. Our guest today will talk about this a little bit more and will also provide insight on what's been happening inside Georgia since then. Joining us today is Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President of the Atlantic Council and member of the National Security Council during the 2008 invasion. Eke Gigauri, Director of Transparency International in Georgia, which is one of the leading government watchdogs in Georgia. And finally, Jamie Kerchik, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. Providing little context on each of these interviews is IRI's program director in Georgia, John DePiro. John, could you fill us in on Georgia's political history from the Rose Revolution to today? Sure, I'd be happy to. The Rose Revolution is a very appropriate starting point. What I think made Georgia unique, in many ways a shining example of what could be accomplished in a former Soviet state, so to speak, uh, was what happened after the 90s. And in this case, the widespread allegations of electoral fraud in the 2003 parliamentary elections was the straw which broke the camel's back, so to speak, eventually leading to what we now know as the Rose Revolution. And it was from the Rose Revolution that Mikhail Saakashvili, referred to by most people in Georgia as Misha, emerged as the new Georgian leader, winning a sweeping victory in the 2004 presidential election. After being elected, Misha took very quick action, instituting a series of reforms, the most widely known of which was firing all the street police in one day. It was a sign that his administration was serious about rooting out corruption and bribery. Moreover, it was a step that no other former Soviet state had taken, uh, many of which were still and are still ruled by organized criminals, um, that Georgia was going to take a different path. Saakashvili instituted a series of reforms. His administration built water and power and educational infrastructure across the regional cities. They increased gross domestic product through uh, economic reforms. 
uh, established stronger tax and customs infrastructure, they improved national education standards, and they established stronger safeguards for transparency in the judicial system. So it would come as no surprise that by 2012, Georgia was named as a, a leading economic reformer in the world. Unfortunately, within a few years of his election, uh, Saakashvili's administration was eventually marred by widespread allegations of internal corruption and abuse of power. Uh, they had instituted a zero-tolerance criminal justice system. Uh, in many ways, while this may have been a necessary evil, if you will, in country it's widely recognized that they took this too far. People started to feel immense pressure and control from the state, particularly financial pressure on the private sector through the revenue services and the financial police, which by many were perceived to be shaking businesses down through extra-legal means. Uh, this was further accompanied by civil rights violations, which violently put down peaceful protests in 2007 and even took excessive action against petty criminals. So by January 2008, though he had already started to lose popular support, Saakashvili was re-elected uh, as president in, in a highly controversial election, which was even criticized by the OSCE for ballot stuffing, for, for violence against opposition. However, the noise surrounding this election was eclipsed by a larger event. By August 2008, following the Bucharest summit, where the alliance announced that Georgia and Ukraine would become NATO member states, the Russian military invaded Georgia through the contested region of South Ossetia, uh, as many know it, the Tsken Valley region. Russia later fully recognized Abkhazia and South Ossetia as independent nations, which of course led Georgia to break all diplomatic ties. Uh, though this united the nation behind Saakashvili and led to an additional military reforms and partnerships, popular unrest gradually began to grow again. And feeling popular support sort of slipping through their fingers, Saakashvili's party, United National Movement, engaged in what is now recognized as a very hostile parliamentary election in 2012. And it was in the context of this election uh, where Bettini Ivanishvili, Georgia's oligarch-like billionaire, fully entered the political and social scene. Uh, Ivanishvili was a leader in criticizing, criticizing both the president and his party. Uh, he eventually formed his own party, Georgian Dream, in late 2011, and soon enough they formed a coalition with a series of other smaller but well-known parties. And together they engaged in a very heated 2012 election, resulting in a victory over the national movement. Ivanishvili was selected by the parliament as the new prime minister, and by 2013, at the end of his second term, Saakashvili retired as president and eventually left Georgia. Fast forwarding now to 2016, after winning a constitutional majority in the 2016 parliamentary elections, the party led by Ivanishvili uh, has had full control over all aspects of the legislative agenda, allowing them to change the constitution to what many believe was designed to suit the party and the party leaders' needs. Moreover, there is a perception by many citizens that this government has had closer ties to the Russian Federation, uh, primarily emanating from policies, uh, or lack thereof, uh, which would take a harder line on a country in which Georgia remains in ongoing frozen conflicts in both South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, lastly, with respect to transparency, the full control of Georgian Dream over the legislature and the reintroduction of Ivanishvili as the official party leader in 2018 has demonstrated a system of informal governance that is currently running the country. So I think that sets a broad backdrop for Damon to, to dive a bit deeper into Georgia's path to European integration, how they got to where they are, and the places they can go from here. First up, we have Damon Wilson.
This is kind of a gloomy way to start out, but in its history, the state in Georgia has had difficulties controlling violence and extremely high levels of corruption and a prevalent shadow economy, which is partly why Georgian leaders since the 90s focused on state building rather than democracy. Could you trace the historical passage by which Georgia ended up with these characteristics? Sure. I think I would not say it's a gloomy way to start out. It actually is a reason that I think Georgia provides me such inspiration and hope is because um, this is a country, first of all, with an incredibly rich history, if you think historically about the Georgian tradition, the Georgian culture, its religion, uh, the role um, of the the would-be independent Georgia before the Red Army uh, rolled in in the 20s. And here we have, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, independence regained and woefully unprepared, an incredible Soviet, post-Soviet legacy that essentially serves as an albatross around the country's neck. So all those challenges you described, I mean, the immediate outbreak of really some nasty conflict on the territory of Georgia, some ethnic cleavages that were played upon by political actors at the time that still haunt the country today, combined with sort of a, a really strong post-Soviet legacy around a dysfunctional economy at the time, gave it incredibly steep, uh, steep hill to climb. And so the early experiences of the Georgians in dealing with the dysfunctional economy, not just war, but then the ongoing sort of sense of violence in the culture and the community that played out, organized crime. I mean, it was really a tough patch. I remember flying through Tbilisi before the Rose Revolu- Revolution, electricity spotty, security on the streets questionable, the traffic police always a little bit of a, a menace, elevators and government buildings not working. And that's why today, when we all focus on the drawbacks and problems and shortcomings of Georgian democracy today, which, which are many, I just remember where this country has come from, which actually makes me so optimistic about where the country's headed because of how decisively it has dealt with some of these real problems and challenges, the bad cards it was dealt with the collapse of the Soviet Union, even as it still has tasks to deal with. I think oftentimes, especially we in the democracy development community, are kind of impatient, and we don't realize how long the trajectories we're looking at are, you know, that it takes a long time for countries to transition, to implement reforms, and to overcome histories or change cultures that we just expect it to happen in one or two years. It's just not realistic. So, Well, the Georgians bring in an incredible culture, which is a huge contribution to the world, to everything, to our pleasure. But what, what you're talking about is really all the small decisions that over time build up to building a democratic political culture. And I think that's where you've seen twos and fro's and the testing. And in some respects, Georgia jumped ahead of, of all of its neighbors. But because it succeeded against the odds and because the Georgian people in their incredible spirit have such extraordinary ambitions, you could say almost outrageous ambitions for this country nestled in the Caucasus to be anchored in the West, to be part of the transatlantic community, to be part of the free world and the democratic community of nations and ultimately part of NATO and the European Union. First of all, that's an audacious vision for the region. Good for them. Good for Georgia. But that's why it means that we're impatient because they've articulated and set ambitions so high. And because those ambitions are achievable, we will often get frustrated when we feel that we're not making the progress we want. And I suspect that's how it plays out in your community. It's nice that we're holding this country to a high standard, and that's why we expect so much and want so much for them. So just switching topics slightly, that one thing that struck me is a similarity between Georgia and Tunisia, which is a country that I used to work on, was that corruption was one of the main reasons for revolutions in both of those countries. 
Could you talk about how corruption fit into the Rose Revolution? I think corruption was fundamental to the trajectory. I will say I was I went to Tunisia this year, and the thing that struck me about very different countries, but you know, have gone through some comparable revolutions, evolutions. I was really struck by the dissipation of the sense of hope for the future in Tunisia, and I have to say that that's one of the things that's always struck me in Georgia is that there's this strong sense of hope and aspiration and ambition for the future. Now, I've noticed ups and downs in that, and there's been a little bit of a, of a down in some of my past visits, but I think that's an enduring quality for the expectations of a people that expect better, want to hold people accountable to deliver better, that see and hope for that kind of trajectory. I think that's an important motivator driver um, in transitional countries like Georgia itself. The Rose Revolution took place in part because of the individual frustrations that people have in their daily lives when they know something's not right. And that the power structure, whether it is the traffic cops or the leaders of the country, are corrupt or taking from the people themselves. Does the way the Rose Revolution happened bear any lessons for Georgia's future? Could you see something similar happening in the near future? Look, I think the Rose Revolution were particular circumstances that demanded wholesale systemic change. You don't think that's needed now? No. I mean, look, is, is, are there issues to be tackled in Georgia? Of course. What I'm hoping we can see more, not less, is the muscle movements of the democratic process, of democratic habits of cooperation in parliament, in campaigns, and elections. We want to see folks embrace the rules that are embedded in a democratic constitution to figure out how to compete vigorously. And it's easier said than done because in a small market like Georgia, I mean, what does this mean in terms of comes to political party financing and media operations? That's complicated in the United States. It's right. really complicated in a small market like Georgia. But within a, a, a democratic process framework, the Georgians can shape this through the ballot box, through their engagement with uh, parliament and civil society. I mean, this is an enormously uh, energetic civil society, which I think is an unusual strength for a country of this size that is a, a really privileged and important asset of Georgia's case, that it's part of the free world and that it wants to be part of the institutions of the West. I want to go to, to your experience now. So you were the director for Central Eastern and Northern European Affairs at the National Security Council in the time period shortly after the Rose Revolution. Do you have any stories you could share from your experiences in that period? Yeah, that was a, a hopeful Role. I went back to the NSC as senior director for Europe during the 2008 war, which was actually a far more difficult thing. We can come back to that. But one of the things that I often uh, reflected upon and shared with folks is that you know, there's a narrative out there from uh, the Kremlin that the Americans are behind every revolution, everything happening. The truth is that we were a little bit flat-footed. This was led by Georgian people, Georgian leaders, and we were a little bit slow to the party. Through this incredible transition, they've earned our backing and our support, so let's lean in. And that's where I'm proud to say we may not have leaned in in the front end, and it wasn't our role. That was really the Georgian people's role. But with the team, we were able to lean in uh, once there was an opportunity, something to back. Since you mentioned uh, 2008 in your, your time in the National Security Council again at that time, with uh, Georgia being invaded by Russia and South Ossetia and Abkhazia, I feel like we have to talk about those subjects. Like You can't talk about Georgia without talking about those subjects, especially since I think domestic news has really crowded out. Talk about South Ossetia and Abkhazia since that time period. Um, you hear a little bit about Ukraine, but you don't hear much about Georgia and what's going on there these days. Well, let me start back a little bit 
in 2008 because this, these were among the darkest days that I felt uh, for me personally working at the National Security Council. And it's a chapter that I'm not proud of at all because I think I hate the fact that it happened. I'm proud of, in many respects, how we responded partially and think that there are some strategic mistakes then that haunt us today. First of all, it's so transparent what the Russians were doing that we have to remind ourselves that everybody wants to sometimes pretend like this happened all of a sudden. Crimea took us by surprise. For those of us that were following this in the run-up to 2008, we saw an intentional strategy of creeping annexation. We saw the rebuilding of railroad tracks by Russia's military branch, which handled eventually laying transport that carried troops into the country. We saw the shoot down of Georgian UAVs. We saw a whole series of efforts to obfuscate and undermine a ratcheting up of a diplomatic process to deal with the occupied territories and, and to deal with Abkhazia, South Ossetia at the time. As we began to even push more on the diplomatic front, they began to stall more. All of this, in retrospect, led directly to the August War. This is partly why the Georgians were on edge, because they could see and feel what was happening, and so terrified that the international community, the United States in particular, were just kind of letting these incremental things happen. We saw that this was headed in a bad direction. We tried to ratchet up the diplomatic process with the Russians, did a brilliant job of obfuscating, denying, postponing meetings, and boom, we end up in a, in a war. In a really tough time, sitting at the White House, sitting in the National Security Council, getting woken up in the middle of the night on the secure call at home, uh, knowing that uh, incredible partners of ours, would-be allies of ours, are under attack, and that there are limited things that we can do that our country's not prepared to go into direct battle uh, with Russia on this. But we tried to mobilize everything to stop the advance, ensure there would be continuity of government, and we were quite concerned about that, and to get the conflict to stop and to begin a diplomatic process. Russian tanks didn't roll into Tbilisi ultimately, which is where we were concerned things were headed and had good reason. President Bush tried to move decisively to at least limit the scale of the ambition. There's a Russian tactic that success breeds success, and as they felt that they could make more, their ambitions would increase with what they were trying to achieve. We tried to keep that in a box. We rallied with Congress and Senator Kerry and others at the time working with us, Senator Biden and, and the administration, to put a $1 billion package because we were worried about an immediate freefall of the economy that would really devastate Georgia. Um, I'm proud that that was able to move forward. And what is really remarkable, we, we got a billion dollars through Congress as we were going into the extraordinary financial crisis. That said, this happened in a period of transition, the end of the Bush administration, election season. And one of my big regrets is that the team, the administration, decided not to go all in on consequences for Russia because we were weighing some serious things from sanctions and other structural things the, I think, senior officials felt that might be prejudicial to a new team that was coming in. And so I think it was a mistake, but I understand why my bosses decided to hold fire. And we didn't respond with consequences of consequence for Russia to feel the pain from that action. And we go into a new government, we go into Russia reset, and Mr. Putin learns he can get away with murder, literally. And that has haunted us. 
whether it's been Russian dissidents at home or Ukrainians in Donbass and Crimea. Um, and that's part of the reason why I remain very focused on Georgia today. We didn't get it right. John, you saw some similarities between the 2016 parliamentary and 2018 presidential elections in Georgia, didn't you? I did indeed. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't focus as much on the elections of the past three years before Damon's interview because, uh, well, I think this, this provides us with a much more sound basis for sort of exploring electoral reform and progress. As we've already touched on, Georgia's 2016 parliamentary elections, they saw a decisive victory for the Georgian Dream Party which won 115 out of 150 seats, an obvious and clear constitutional majority. Now, this has given them unfettered rule over the legislative system, along with government institutions and the courts. Uh, this was my first election in Georgia, where I was managing our long-term observation mission. And I can say firsthand that many of the allegations that had previously been made against Saakashvili's government and his party were now being made against Ivanishvili and his party. Of course, it was really difficult to prove any of this, and as such, we only reported on cases where we had irrefutable evidence. The abuse of administrative resources, pressure or intimidation on state employees, and the threat of violence against the opposition party members. The level of authority and control, I think, was was really cemented locally in the 2017 municipal elections, when Georgian Dream won the majority of seats in 62 out of 64 municipalities across the country. And following this election, the same allegations were present as were in 2016. Only the levels of pressure and intimidation appear to be much more widespread. Now, in the months leading up to the most recent presidential election in 2018, the parliament had drastically reduced uh, executive authority authority, uh, and in addition to the fact that this would be the last direct election of the presidency by popular vote. So it was widely believed that these elections had little to no significance, uh, as the position was more symbolic than substantive. Of course, that assumption quickly went out the window. While the ruling party indicated that they would not select a candidate, citing the need to avoid single-party rule across all branches of government, once the United Opposition's candidate, uh, the former foreign minister, Grigol Vashadze, began gaining momentum and support, the government decided to back the informally, quote-unquote, independent candidate, uh, Salome Zurabashvili, uh, who was at the time a serving member of parliament. From there, the election quickly descended into a toxic environment uh, with a highly polarized media landscape that further divided society, uh, widespread allegations of abuse of administrative resources, and the use of rhetoric that labeled both candidates as traitors or even Russian sympathizers or spies. Right? Imagine how that would divide a society. So taking it one step further, uh, the pre-election period also saw serious allegations of corruption against the ruling party, uh, which were supported but not yet substantiated by the release of highly incriminating audio and video recordings, uh, which essentially implicated public officials and former leaders in shakedowns and payoffs. Uh, when civil society organizations released a statement condemning these developments, one of which was Eka Gigauri's organization, Transparency International, uh, they were publicly attacked by senior officials in the ruling party with accusations of political partisanship, unprofessionalism, and even fascism. By the time the first round had commenced, uh, it seemed as though citizens were voting against rather than for anyone. 
And I think this was reflected in the results, with both candidates gaining roughly 37% of the vote, carrying the election on into a second round. In the month leading to that second round, the ruling party officially claimed Ms. Sudabashvili as their candidate. Uh, rallies were also held by the ruling party against the opposition, which to date is something I've never heard of before. Uh, and of course, the media environment continued to grow in terms of toxicity and polarization. Additionally, the OSCE and the ODIR election observation mission cited a debt write-off where Ivanishvili's foundation announced that they would forgive around 600,000 citizens' outstanding debts. Uh, though the ruling party claimed that this was an initiative prior to the first round, it is rather odd uh, that they would wait until a runoff to mention it. The OSCE mission indicated that this debt write-off uh, essentially constituted vote buying, which is an expression we haven't heard in Georgia for some time. But whatever the case and whatever the ruling party did or did not do, their candidate, Ms. Surabashvili, managed to win the second round 60% to 40%, with a 10% increase in voter turnout. Typically, in a second round election, there's usually a 10% to 20% decrease in voter turnout. So to see a 10% increase is, um, let's just say, unusual. And of course, the election day reports by local and international observation missions uh, they documented widespread intimidation outside polling stations, along with continued use or abuse of administrative resources. Very recently, the, the Economist released their 2018 Democracy Index, uh, which recently dropped Georgia by 10 points to 89th place. Uh, the report attributes this drop to both the regularities in the 2018 elections, as well as concentration of all political powers into the hands of Mr. Ivanishvili. And of course, it credits the debt write-off as providing the government with, at the very least, a sizable campaign advantage over the opposition. So I think that provides us with a bit more context as we go into Eka's analysis of the electoral situation. Next, we talk to Eka Gigaoui. Eka, I've read that the new generation of Georgian elite after the Rose Revolution believe that the revolution couldn't end there because they needed to take measures to root out the corrupt practices that came from longtime Soviet heritage. Do you still think that political will exists in Georgia for continued reforms? Yeah, even uh, with the previous administration, I would say that at some point, uh, because we did not have the proper system of checks and balances, the democratic institutions were weak and there was the huge concentration of power in one political party. So this was the very important and very problematic obstacle to the father development of our political culture and to eradicate the elite corruption. So we had the achievements with the petty corruption, but then still there were problems related to the elite corruption, abuse of power and so on. Yes, so that's why we are saying from one side, it's very important to have the political will and to start the anti-corruption reforms and from the other side also to build the democratic institutions and to build the system of checks and balances. I think that leads well into my next question about the cycle of putative reformers, both, I think, Saakashvili and Ivanishvili, coming in on a wave of anti-corruption or anti-authoritarianism sentiment. What do you think happens in between those elections where they go from being the reformer to part of kind of the corrupt system? So in my analysis, the core problems between uh, the Saakashvili's and Ivanishvili's times are the same. It is the excessive, unbalanced, and uncontrolled powers 
in the hands of the both political forces, which in fact were translated in the unchallenged rule of the both political leaders. Saakashvili did start as a reformer, as I said, and his team did accomplish many important changes. However, because of the total power in his hands, his political force lost the touch with the real problems of Georgians and started to abuse the power, which resulted in the grave violation of the rule of law and uh, the human rights. After uh, several years of his ruling, we had uh, lots of examples which proved that uh, the law enforcement agencies were extremely uh, politicized and there was no system that could challenge this problem. So uh, when Ivanishvili decided to run for the office, he actually united everybody against Saakashvili's government and party, and it was uh, like everybody against one. And so he managed to win these elections. They are represented in the parliament of Georgia, I mean Ivanishvili's party, with the super constitutional majority. They have majority in all uh, city councils around the country. Their, their representative just became the president of Georgia, and they are backing particular judges in judiciary system and adopting the laws which strengthen these particular judges inside the judiciary system in order to manage the whole system when it will be needed. So what I'm saying is that again we have concentration of power in the hands of one political party and that's why at this point we talk also about the signs of state capture mm -hmm. uh, because we had number of instances high officials were involved in alleged corruption and there was no investigation initiated and so on so i would say that it's very important from once and again from one side to be a reformer to have the concrete idea how to develop different uh, sectors in uh, in georgia but also a at the same time, what we really need, we need the independent uh, institutions in uh, in our country, and definitely in all this, we need the independent uh, judiciary because without uh, having independent judiciary, so it's impossible to uh, talk about any standards of democracy in our country. And not only an independent judiciary, but I think also just an understanding of playing by the rules of the game and not using the political institutions for partisan purposes, like you were talking about state capture. But you were talking also about allegations of corruption against the ruling party during the latest round of elections. And I understand that there were civil society organizations that, that raised concerns about these, these corruption allegations, and they are in turn accused of political partisanship, on professionalism, and even fascism. How did the Georgian citizens react to this atmosphere? Did you see apathy or polarization? So I would say that we have a polarized society now and also unfortunately during all this time lots of protest and political parties could not manage to develop before the presidential elections uh, uh, in Georgia. So this country became the battlefield between the ruling party and the national movement. And sometimes in this fight, they forget about the public. That's why we had quite high per percentage of undecided voters. When they watch these uh, the politicians, when they listen to their conversations, they don't feel that these are the people who represent them and who can solve their everyday problems. 
And in all this, uh, we're a civil society which is quite strong and we try to be in the middle and show to the public what are the most important issues in all this. So we are also the ones criticizing the both sides and uh, we are not the ones who are liked by any of the parties. When the national movement was in the power, so they had this uh, in their message, we are linked to the opposition at that time, Georgia Dream. So this is this is the message that we got used to. But now the uh, Georgian Dream became even more radical because now what we observe that uh, the Speaker of the Parliament, he makes press conferences uh, calling the civil society organizations fascists. And also there was this strong campaign against leaders of civil society. This information campaign, this was like not about our statements or our uh, reports. This campaign was like really very personal, like you know, KGB type of methods that they were using. And also these private messages that I personally was getting as a woman. It was very hard. Uh, it was very tough time during the pre-election period, uh, especially. And this was first time that the civil society was under such pressure. Because, like, you know, for instance, when we talked about the information that the whistleblower told us, I spent five hours at the prosecutor's office or six hours at the prosecutor's office. So the prosecutor was questioning me and pushing me to tell him who was the whistleblower which is the violation of the Constitution and violation of the law. That's why we now try to take more measures when it comes to cyber security and also crisis management plans. So this is um, this is a very unfortunate thing that we are doing, but I think that it's very important to prepare ourselves for the worst time. And returning to the subject that you talked about in terms of playing by the rules of the game, it seems like when electoral violations have been observed in Georgia, it seems to be driven by a sense that since everybody is cheating, everyone needs to cheat. And so the party that wins elections tends to monopolize state control, like you said, capture state control. I think it's also maybe the polarizing environment around the elections where people are throwing this very hate-filled rhetoric at each other. And so they're inclined to believe the worst about their opponents. Do you agree about that? Of course, we need time to have uh, like proper quality of democracy. And of course, uh, this is not only the responsibility of the ruling party to build the democracy in our country. Of course, uh, the responsibility also lays on opposition parties and other groups and also individual citizens. So the only difference is that when a ruling party has the constitutional majority, of course, they have more responsibility in everything. It's not that the opposition did not violate the rule or the, the, the legislation. So we also see that they're talking especially about the disinformation campaign that was used by the ruling party. The opposition also was using the same methods, not like in such a scale. Somehow they were involved in uh, uh, disinformation campaigns against their uh, opponents. At the same time, I think that we dealt with some of the issues like anti-corruption very successfully and in a very short period of time, we, we have managed to show uh, very tangible results. So what I'm saying is that if we will focus on uh, independent institutions, even if we do not have proper political parties or those political parties, 
or political parties sharing high standards, still it would be possible for us to have a proper political process. Without this, it will, it will be impossible. And that's why it's very important to, for us to focus on, on this direction. And again, when talking we, I mean the citizens, different groups, uh, uh, politicians, so all of us do should do our best, play our own role uh, in order to have such system in our country. So, John, how would you sum up your comments on Georgia? Well, I realize that my assessment could very easily be perceived as overly critical of the government or the ruling party. However, we tend to be most critical of the things we care most about. I'm sometimes critical of the U.S. policies precisely because I'm patriotic, right? I I wish to see my country succeed and live up to our full potential. And I feel the same way about Georgia. Taking my comments into account, I believe there should be, there very much should be a place for, for the Georgian Dream Party, just as there should be for the UNM Party, and just as there should be for many other smaller parties. Uh, multi-partyism, it's a cornerstone of any healthy parliamentary democracy. It ensures greater representation of the population, and it helps to include citizens that feel marginalized. And I think if this election has shown us anything beyond democratic backsliding or the tendency for history to repeat itself, it's that citizens in Georgia feel less and less as though their interests or concerns are being represented by their leaders. If Georgia is ever going to move forward in their development as a European democracy, then this system of zero-sum gains must change. The absence of an absolute victory does not equal loss. And in the same way, one party does not need to win all seats in Parliament. In fact, doing so only increases the likelihood of poor citizen representation. And political actors need to do a better job of engaging in discourse, rather than simply hurling offensive or or hateful rhetoric. This only closes the space and further polarizes parties, and as a result, their supporters. And lastly, the electoral system needs to institute serious reforms in both campaign finance regulations as well as the selection of election administrators. Citizens need to trust the impartial institutions that were created to represent them. Georgia is a terrific country. It's a great country, one for for which I have a great deal of respect and admiration. Uh, It is a country that has, despite its flaws and shortcomings, made great progress in the past 15 years. Georgia can still turn these challenging times into an opportunity. But to do that, political parties, the government, and the people need to start acknowledging the reality that this situation as it is, this bipolar, highly divided political space, cannot survive much longer. I spent my last seven years working in the former Soviet space in Central Asia, and you know, I'm very familiar with the fact that Politics have, for many years, been driven by personalities and finances. But to those points, I would say this. If the government continues to ignore the will of the public or the need for real reform, and if parties cannot begin representing the real interests and values of their respective constituencies, then this toxic, bipolar system will start to have long-term negative implications for the state's integration into the Euro-Atlantic space. And that would be the greatest of pities for a nation that has not only spent the past 15 years demonstrating democratic progress, but has also been the model for the former Soviet world. I'm reminded of uh, of a story this this past year during the McCain Institute conference in Tbilisi when former U.S. Ambassador John Taft, he expressed some very meaningful words that, that, that stuck with me. He said, fight each other like hell politically, but remember, 
When the time comes, you're all Georgians, and you'll need to stand together to move forward. In truth, I, I couldn't agree more. It won't be easy, and quite frankly, we as Americans find this equally as challenging as our politics are currently demonstrating. I think the hardest and longest road still lies ahead. And it will require patience. It will require dedication and a unified vision. And in the end, isn't that what people want the most? A freely and fairly elected government composed of leaders that represent all citizens and, and adheres to a strong rule of law and that puts their economic well-being and safety first? I, for one, would vote for that. And to wrap up, we've got Jamie Kerchick. I'm curious uh, how you got into uh, Georgia and the post-Soviet Union states. Well, in 2008, in August, actually, I was invited on a um, sort of press junket to Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. And it was literally, it happened the weekend that the Russians invaded Georgia. And so I remember even getting into the airport or in London where I was flying from. There were a bunch of sort of Georgian refugees who couldn't go home. And so they were flying to Azerbaijan and they were kind of stuck in the airport in Baku. And then I remember the following year... I went to the Munich Security Conference, and that was just in February of 2009, and that's where Joe Biden announced the reset policy, um, which was really the first major diplomatic initiative of the Obama administration. Yes. And then the following year after that, I was recruited to go work at Radio Free Europe in Prague, covering that whole region among many, you know, among the, the broader sort of post-Soviet world. So I'd always been uh, professionally sort of engaged in this part of the world since since 2008. And Georgia, I guess, has always had a sort of special place in my heart because it's um, I think unique among the countries of that part of the world in having very clearly expressed Western aspirations among the majority of the population and among the governments really since 2003 and really risking a lot to, to do it. I've been very sort of an enamored of Georgia in that sense and also just visiting the country. Uh, the people are very warm and, and probably the most hospitable people in the world, frankly, and I've traveled to many places. Georgia definitely captured, when I was reading about it, it captured my attention too for being the kind of the little country that stands yeah. up to Russia and is trying to integrate into the EU. And it had such a hopeful trajectory for a while. Everybody was really excited about how it was doing all these reforms and everything up until, I want to say, like 2012. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily conflate the defeat of Misha Saakashvili with rejection of kind of Western integration. I think yeah. the people voted for various reasons against him. He's obviously, you know, a very controversial leader. He was quite iron-fisted in his final years. There were some pretty big corruption scandals. So I think, you know, certainly a large part of the reason why people were voting for Mr. Ivanishvili had to do with um, perhaps maybe exhaustion with Saakashvili, exhaustion even with Western integration. People thinking, is it really worth it to you know antagonize Russia like this? We had a war over it. They've taken 20% of our territory. We're not seeing the results fast enough. Ivanishvili was throwing a lot of money around. I mean, he's a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, certainly the richest man in that country. He lives in this sort of like Batman villain cave overlooking Tbilisi. So there are lots of reasons why what happened happened in 2012. But I do think it was also kind of an early sign of sort of the democratic regression that we've seen in many parts of the former Soviet space. Um, obviously, now it's a big topic that we talk a lot about, you know, what's going on in Hungary and Poland and to some extent the Czech Republic and also in Russia itself. Um, and, I, and I think it you could actually look back and say, well, you know, maybe things started going the wrong way in, you know, in Georgia in 2012. With Georgia backsliding, do you think there's a chance it could return to authoritarianism or you think that this is just a pendulum swing it's on? I think it's definitely possible. I mean, the roots of democracy are not particularly deep in Georgia. 
it's still a place where you know oligarchs can exert a lot of power. Um, a lot of money in politics. A lot of money in politics. The judiciary is not exactly independent in the way that it is in, say, most other Western countries. You know, one of the things I'm hopeful about is there is there's a good degree of press freedom. There isn't much press independence. I think these are two different concepts. Right. Every media outlet is sort of tied to a political faction, whether it's the government slash Ivanishvili or Saakashvili or other kind of political outlets. I mean, the state television is not, it's not like the BBC, but there's media pluralism. So there's media competition. There's lots of different voices in the same way, you know, in, in Ukraine. That distinguishes those countries from Russia in an important way because in Russia you don't have media pluralism. You really have the government or forces allied with the government controlling all the television stations. So there's media pluralism in Georgia and that's important. But that doesn't mean that things cannot go in a bad direction. Switching topics to Georgia's membership path for EU and NATO or the need for that. I understand that France and Germany in 2008 stymied these paths in the past, and you alluded to President Obama's reset uh, in Russian relations that also probably did not help matters. Why did France and Germany not allow Georgia to go down that path? So you're referring to the Bucharest summit, which occurred in April of 2008. It was a NATO summit. Right. And it was being decided upon whether or not Georgia and Ukraine would get what's referred to as a membership action plan, which are sort of the preliminary process that countries go through in order to become members of NATO. And it involves all sorts of evaluative processes to make sure that a country's uh, military or is under civilian control, that the intelligence services are controlled by civilians, that the military meets the standards of Western militaries, that a country's government and its processes and and all that basically, you know, meet the standards that a NATO country would need. But there's also broader geostrategic questions involved. And that's ultimately what got these two countries into trouble with the French and Germans who felt that, you know, the Russians would not accept two former Soviet satellite states, which they were, from becoming members of NATO. The only Soviet satellites to become members of NATO are the Baltic states. Um, but of course, the Baltic states were small, they're tiny. And it was deemed, I guess, more politically acceptable. Also, they had become pretty clear, strong, democ liberal democracies, the Baltic states had, that made them better candidates for membership. But France and Germany, I think, didn't want to be, or as they would say, they thought it was too risky to get Ukraine and Georgia moving in that direction, that they didn't want to get you know, dragged into a war with Russia over these countries. Georgia, in particular, is more geographically remote than Ukraine. And I would argue that by rejecting this, uh, these membership action plans for these for Georgia and Ukraine in 2008, they really sent a signal to Putin that he could pretty much have his way with these places. It kind of let, left them in a in a gray zone between the West and the East. And you saw just a couple months later in August 2008 that he invaded Georgia and occupied 20% of its territory. And then obviously in 2014, he seized the uh, Crimean Peninsula and is continuing to wage a war in Eastern Ukraine. So I would say that the consequences of this decision were uh, were quite grave. You've written a lot about the argument for Georgia's accession to NATO and the EU. Well, I think it's the same argument that applies to every country that has joined these institutions, that EU membership and NATO membership is a great incentivizer for liberal reform, and that joining these institutions, the benefits are so great. In terms of the EU, you're joining the world's largest economy, the largest trading bloc, uh, the world's largest collection of liberal democracies. And in terms of NATO, you're getting an ironclad security guarantee because no NATO member has ever been conventionally attacked. And so joining these two institutions is such a great achievement for a country that it can compel the political leaderships of these countries to pretty much do whatever is necessary to join. 
And so if the EU and the NATO make all these demands, like you have to have an independent judiciary, you need a free market regulated economy, you need to tackle corruption, you need to have multi-party you know, elections and free and fair elections, you need media pluralism, you need to respect human rights and women's rights and all these basically these benchmarks that we expect of uh, you know Western countries that you have to have some kind of carrot. You can't just say theoretically you should do these things you actually you know some people will say yes we should do them because we can see that it'll it'll make our lives better and more prosperous but if you can actually hold out some you know real tangible um almost reward for doing these things then i think you can incentivize you know good behavior and i think that's what we got in central and eastern europe after the end of the cold war was you had some visionary leaders in you know helmut kohl and margaret thatcher and george hw bush and later bill clinton who realized we need to really get working to integrate what was then czechoslovakia and poland and the baltic states and romania and slovenia and all these countries that are now members of the eu and nato we need to do what we can to get them in the club. You know, it, it might seem far-fetched to say that a country like Georgia could be in these institutions, but I think you always have to hold out the possibility because it is the greatest incentivizer of democratic reform. And I'll just remind people that, you know, during the Cold War, the United States never recognized the Soviet occupation of the Baltic states. We had something called the Wells Doctrine, and it was that the United States would never recognize what the Soviets did because it was, you know, blatantly illegal. And I'm sure there were people in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s who were saying, you know what, the Soviets have been in control of the Baltic states for you know, 20 and 30 and 40 years now. This is silly. We should just recognize that it's, you know, it's de facto, whether or not it's de jure legal, it's de facto. And the United States never did that. And we were vindicated when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Baltic states regained their independence. And so I say I make the same argument whether it's not recognizing the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula or holding out NATO and EU membership for a country like Georgia. You have to look towards the long run and you have to be able to orient your policies with that goal in mind. Otherwise, I think you're going to leave these countries in a, in a hopeless strategic and political and economic gray zone. So what are Georgians saying these days about where their country is headed and American policy towards them? Uh, I think like everyone, they're confused and unsure of what to make of what's going on in the world right now. Uh, there was a lot of disappointment during the Obama years because of the reset. And there was a feeling that the concerns of countries like Georgia were being not given priority and that they were being sacrificed on the altar of better relations with their neighbor, that that did not work and that you will have many Georgians say, well, look what the Obama administration did with regards to Georgia basically sent a signal to Putin that he could get away with what he did in Ukraine and that not punishing Putin for what he did in Georgia. There were no sanctions put on Russia for what they did in Georgia. Uh, nothing at all was done to punish Russia. There were some stern statements and that was about it. In fact, quite the opposite. They were, you could say that they were rewarded with a reset policy in which there were all sorts of diplomatic initiatives were begun and, you know, high level exchanges between the U.S. and Russia under the reset. So I think Georgians are, are concerned. They are concerned that the United States is retreating from the world. Uh, the death of Senator McCain, who was beloved in Georgia, a national hero, um, I think is really... Um, left them hoping that there will be other people in Congress who will, you know, do what they can to replace, you know, take his mantle. Obviously, no one can replace him, but try to do what they can to, you know, raise the concerns of, uh, of countries like Georgia. If there are one trait that characterizes Georgia, what would you say it is? I would say it is their um, determination. 
this is a country that is in a really, really tough neighborhood and has suffered a great deal for wanting to move in a westward direction. They've lost 20% of their territory. They've lost soldiers fighting in defense of their country. They've sacrificed an enormous amount. They've really placed a wager on the West in a way that few other countries have. And I really think that we owe it to them to do what we can to help them along in that process. We wanted to give a big shout out to our guests and thank them again. They did an excellent job providing a snapshot of where Georgia is today. Follow them if you want to get more in-depth analysis about Georgia and the region. You can follow Damon at Damon MacWilson, Eka Gigauri at Kat Gigauri, and Jamie Kerchik at Jay Kerchik. And for those of you who may be following the news, this last month has seen a lot of activity in Venezuela and Zimbabwe, which are two countries that we've explored on this podcast before. For a refresher on how these countries came to be in the situation they're in today, check out our earlier episodes. That's it for me. Thanks.